the description that the Buddha gives for the liberation that arises from this path that we're exploring together is very simple and concise. It's a mind, or you could say it's a heart that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. A heart that's free of reactivity. And you probably notice it's a description that points out what's not there rather than what is there. You know, there's no reactivity in the heart. And, and quite often uh, what you find in, at least in th- these earlier, earliest texts of, of Buddhism is that there's uh, the situating of liberation more in terms of what's not there compared to what is there. Sometimes there's positive descriptions of, of liberation, but it's more about um, what the heart is free of rather than what's there. And I've noticed for myself as a practitioner, sometimes it's been helpful to find language to give me a felt sense that inspires me towards that. You know, this, this uh, liberation that's word, wordless in some way, to, to frame it in a way that, that can bring it alive, this path and this practice. And I'd like to begin this evening uh, with a poem that's going to frame what I'd like to share with you. Um, and it's a, a poem that it's like I'm, I'm uh, reading it from the sense of being a practitioner on this path. And it does feel like it brings words to the feeling of this path for me, at least one. I think there's many different dimensions. And also opens up, uh, hopefully, a, a conversation in an, important, in an important part of these human lives of ours. And it's a, it's a poem by uh, Chezwav uh, Miłosz. Some of you might know him. He's a, a, he was a Polish poet one of the great poets of the 20th century. He was born in Lithuania, but considered himself a a Polish poet. And I remember uh, going to see him share his poems. This was many, many years ago in Claremont, California. Uh, There is some venue where he was sharing his, his poems. And it was deeply moving. And one of the reasons why it was so moving is because the Polish community around there had turned up to see him and to, to listen to him share his poems. And it, it was like when I walked into the room, it, it was like I could uh, feel how their hearts were, were filled with so much love and excitement around having the opportunity to listen to one of their national heroes. It's really striking. I do hope that someday in this country that many of our national heroes are poets. (laughs) Wouldn't that be cool? Turn things around a little bit. So the the title of the poem is Falling in Love. Tombe Amoru. To fall in love. Does it occur suddenly or gradually? If gradually, when is the moment already? I would fall in love with a monkey made of rags, with a plywood squirrel, with a botanical atlas, with an oriole, with a ferret, with a marten in a picture, with the forest one sees to the right when riding in a cart to Yajanay with a poem by a little-known poet, with human beings whose names still move me. And always the object of love was enveloped in erotic fantasy or was submitted, as in Stendhal, to a crystallization. So it's frightful to think of that object as it was naked among naked things. And of the fairy tales about it one invents. Yes, I was often in love with something or someone. Yet falling in love is not the same as being able to love. 
that is something different. Have you noticed how the heart falls in love with all kinds of things, right? It's attracted to all kinds of things. Have you noticed that on retreat? And I love that phrase. And the fairy tales about it one invents. Notice the fairy tales? Sometimes enveloped in erotic fantasy. And then he makes that distinction, really that turn in the poem. And yet being able to love is something different than all those examples of falling in love. Maybe that's what this is all about on retreat. It's just opening the door to be able to love. Not merely or superficially falling in love. Maybe that's all we're doing here. To heal the hurts and wounds, to free the heart of the hooks and snares that make it challenging to be able to love. Maybe this is what it's all about. And I find that the power of the poem for me is that it's truly about being able to love yet nothing is said about it in the poem other than it's different than falling in love. It's like there's, there's really no words about being able to love. You can talk on and on about falling in love. <laughs> Have you seen your mind talk on and on about falling in love? But maybe being able to love is something different. And this is what I like about its connection with liberation. Like, I, I, There's a liberation here that happens, and it's difficult to put words onto it. And it's not falling in love. It's something different than that. And there might be something about this that you can feel the connection with this path, learning to describe and understand how your heart gets hooked by what I'm calling falling in love and learning how to release those hooks. And then, right, being able to love, then it's just going to naturally unfold without a need for words to describe it. I want to harken back to a a word that Rebecca, I think, used in her first talk, this word intimacy. It's a a word that you find uh, sometimes used in the Zen tradition or or the Chan tradition, a kind of spiritual, spiritual intimacy, whether that be with a breath, a sound, a pain in the body, getting close to sadness or confusion or fear. Not lost in it or overwhelmed by it, but close. And hopefully you're hearing with the words I'm saying, it's an intimacy not just confined to an intimacy with other human beings, but broader. The trees, the wind, the feeling of the body, the feet upon the floor. And maybe truly the path is not about me getting liberated or you getting liberated. Maybe we're just here to liberate intimacy. Maybe your life won't get better from this retreat. 
But wouldn't it be cool to liberate intimacy and to have that feeling, oh, I'm here in service of that. So that intimacy can, true intimacy can happen in this world so that uh, being able to love can happen here. And I'm sure you've noticed intimacy gets so confined. Have you noticed that? It gets entangled with craving and aversion or fears and fantasies. And what I want to begin to narrow down, what I want to share with you is is really in this realm of intimate human connection, because often the mind, right, it can create all kinds of fantasies around intimate human connection, that longing to connect. In that, that realm, I'm sure many of us know how beautiful of a thing that can be to connect. It can be beautiful touching. Sometimes the most touching things for our heart to experience, I know for me. And at the same time, it can be incredibly fraught. It can be painful. It's like an area that can hold both our deepest wounds as well as sometimes our sweetest moments of deep safety, connection, love, and kindness. So when I start to step into this area, I want to acknowledge the huge range of this territory. So tonight, it's about navigating this impulse, this longing for closeness with other human beings. Because it is, it's such a tricky arena, whether it be sexual or not. And and I share it with this frame in order to liberate intimacy from its confinements, in order to be able to love rather than just merely fall in love. And also, as I I begin in this territory, you can hear all the caveats. The caveats are important. (laughs) Just to acknowledge in this room the wide range of of intensity for the wish for closeness with another human being. And you might notice this just from day to day, that longing to connect. For some of you, there just might be lots and lots of contentment with solitude. Solitude is so beautiful. And also something that long retreat can highlight, how wonderful it can be. In others of you here, maybe there's been a really strong pull to connect in all kinds of ways, you know, intimately, to, to, to feel this human connection with others. So a, a, a huge range here. And of course, you might notice a huge range just from day to day when you're on retreat. And in this, this realm, I also want to talk about one of the elements that's not always there, that's sometimes there around this longing, which is sexual energy. Because it arises on retreat. It's, it's deeply intertwined with the human experience, at least for, for a number of people, not everyone. And also a huge range there in terms of how that courses through one's life or one's body. For some people, nothing or not much at all. Other people, really intense every day. And I mention all this just to honor uh, just different ways of being in the world as I move into this territory. So I'd like to share with you a a story of navigating this territory for me uh, that happened on retreat. I was practicing Burma Burma at uh, a place called Semengang, which which still is the the forest monastery connected with Saida Upandita. And on that retreat, he was one of my uh, practice meeting teachers. 
So you have to imagine me. Here I am, long retreat, three months, like all of you. Here I am going to my practice meeting, which already is feels so anxiety-producing. It's like, it's like I kept on telling myself, can I just stop thinking about those 15 minutes that's going to happen in two days, please? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Am I the only one? It's just 15 minutes of my life, please. My God. I wish it was just that, but on top of that, like the, my base level anxiety, then you had like the, 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 the other components that were built on top of that, which is that my practice discussions were with Saida Upandita, who had this kind of sometimes uh, known as having this first per- fierce personality and this, this like demand of continuous mindfulness. So also there was the anxiety of making sure it felt like I had to be mindful for every single step in doing my bows as I walked in there and walked out of there, which again, I was trying to plan for two days ahead of time. (laughs) Don't worry, it gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) And then on top of that, the problem was I had this massive Vipassana romance on the interpreter in the room. (laughs) So it was like, it was like, it was like it was such a nightmare. <laughs> so here I am in this room, Saida Upandita, the interpreter, my heart racing, not only because of the feeling of being intimidated by Saida Upandita, but also because of this huge crush. So can you imagine like these kind of mingling while I'm trying to like report what's going on in my meditation? And it's true, the crush was intense. I had fallen in love with her. Like I had little, literally already planned out our entire lives. Oh my God. And my mind to get pretty hooked and deluded by this. So one day I, I uh, walk in, of course, as mindful as possible, heart racing. And the interpreter wasn't there. There was another interpreter there. And all I could think was, I can't believe it. He read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> And not only had he read my mind, as a result, he had taken away that interpreter and told everybody the reason, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, the, the skinny white guy from the States, he fell in love with the interpreter. We have to get her out of the room. So now I'm feeling completely embarrassed, filled with shame, because everybody knows, right? Luckily, there was some awareness that maybe I wasn't thinking so clearly. And and quite honestly, I think what made it so intense, I mean, there was many things. But I, I wasn't fully acknowledging and being with this experience within myself. Like, there was some mindfulness of it. But I can remember my body bracing around this. Like, I'm feeling this, and I shouldn't be. And that's what created the tangle, was that, how is the mind relating to it? And yes, the interpreter did come back in a few days, kind of eased my mind that maybe my mind wasn't being read. The romance luckily began to fade. And, And... and one of the reasons I, sh- I, I share this is because for some of you, maybe you can relate to this, especially on long retreat. The, there can be an intensity for that, that wanting to connect, to want to have relationship in some way, whether it be having a, a strong sexual tinge to it or just wanting that intimacy, that longing for intimate relationship and connection.
And as I alluded to before, I, th- I think it's important not to also create another place where there's no acknowledgement about being a sexual being. Because this can happen where it's one of those things that is not spoken about. I mean, quite honestly, it reminds me growing up in the family that I grew up in. I grew up in a Catholic family. And I distinctly remember, this is when I was a teenager, there was one book in the house about sex. And I distinctly remember stumbling upon it, seeing the title of it. It was in the bookshelf. Is the official Irish guide to sex. <laughs> I think you know where this is going. <laughs> of course, I was totally psyched about it. <laughs> Parents leave for the evening, so I eagerly get the book down from the shelf and open the book, and all the pages are blank. <laughs> Talk about Duca. I was so disappointed. But it is. It's like the, the perfect Irish Catholic book on sex, don't you think? <laughs> and this is what happens, especially in religious and spiritual circles. It's, it's like there's a, a focus so much on the transcendent that it's like this turning away from noticing these earthy aspects of our being that we need to contend with. And super important for the context that many of you, like me, find yourself thrown into. Kind of the dominant societal approach to sexuality. Either it's, it's denied or it's deeply, deeply obsessed about. It's like these extremes. That's what I get exposed to. And, and as I said in that first talk, our mind is society. So I just want to say it's such a gift to be on retreat and to begin to cultivate a different relationship to this energy if it's coursing through your system at times. What a gift to our communities to liberate intimacy. It's not about you getting liberated or me getting liberated. Maybe it really is about liberating intimacy from these bonds, these hooks, the reactivity, the complications. And it is, it's, it's such a, a challenging arena, the confusion and, and veil that comes from, or can possibly come from attraction when the heart and mind are attracted in these ways. And I want to point out, it's, often I, I don't think it's necessarily about the longing to connect, because it's so human. It's, it's when I'm being blinded by it rather than informed by it. And I do find that longer retreat has opened this opportunity up for me to discover something different, as I've been saying, using this poetic language of being able to love. I remember uh, a fellow practitioner uh, from my Zen days when I was a Zen monk, and as a practitioner, he told me of the story of uh, this interaction that he had with uh, a Zen master he'd been practicing with. And he was was a very, ah, just warm and extroverted individual. And he said each time that he would come on retreat and see the Zen master, he would say, hey, Roshi. Roshi is kind of an, is an honorific term for a Zen master. It is so good to see you. I'm so delighted to see you. You know, and here he is attempting to connect to the Zen master. And the Zen master really had what appeared to him no response whatsoever. Next retreat, same thing. This went on for years, this dynamic. At times he would feel really angry, super sad. 
And then he said, this is such like the way that the practice happens in, in, in Zen. I mean, I love Zen. But after about 10 years of this, <laughs> he started to realize the Zen master was teaching him something different. Really, it was like he could start to feel that when he um, started to enter into a different relationship with the Zen master, there was a deeper connection that was happening on a deeper level. So it was really quite profound. Something much deeper than just social niceties. Really inviting him to liberate intimacy and getting a sense of what that feels like, a deeper connection. And I I want to point out there's nothing wrong with social niceties. And at the same time, we might be able to discover a deeper way of being intimate, whether that's with a human being or a tree or the wind or the rain. And this, this retreat has the conditions to discover that. And one, is the, one of the conditions is uh, one of the things I pointed to in a different context, which is the condition of having solitude on retreat. Solitude is important to learn something about connection, to have a chance to step out of kind of my blind habitual ways of connecting and to slow down with solitude because that's that's where the change can happen. Henry Nguyen puts it well. He says, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. And of course, in, in Buddhism, especially early Buddhism, there's, a, there's a, a tremendous value, a big value put on time in solitude. One of the Earliest one of the one of the the earliest suttas found in a text is the Rhinoceros Sutta, and it's all about the value of solitude. You know, there's this refrain in all the stanzas of to wander alone in solitude like a rhinoceros, and I don't know if you've ever seen a. Rhinoceros, they're, they're amazing creatures. I remember I was uh, in Nepal. I'd finished a long retreat in Lumbini, Nepal. And close by Lumbini, there was a, a national park, Chitwan National Park. And there were, um, you could see, I don't know what the, the plural is. You could see a rhinoceros <laughs> in this park <laughs> safely. They're, they're, they're yeah, from, luckily from a distance. And I remember seeing one alone, the, these beautiful living beings that had a strength and steadiness to them. And, uh, and I remember seeing the rhinoceros alone, but it was a, a particular flavor of being alone. It was this creature that was deeply connected to environment. It was a sense of belongingness with itself and its environment, not isolated and disconnected something different, a sense of solitude. And I want to share with you just two stanzas from this sutta uh, that's talking about solitude with this image of the rhinoceros. One stanza kind of valorizing what can happen in solitude. In time, nurture freedom through love and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, not obstructed by anything in the world. Live in solitude like a rhinoceros. Unstartled like a lion at sounds, unsnared like the wind in a net unsmeared like a lotus in water, live in solitude like a rhinoceros. 
this, this sense of strength, of stamina, but also this sense of heartfulness through the Brahma Viharas, the love and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. So this is one of the conditions here that I, I, I think is important in this realm that I'm talking about. And the other of the conditions is the commitment that all of you have taken to what's called to live the brahmacharya life on retreat. The life of celibacy on retreat. That third precept of brahmacharya, veramani sikha padang samadhyami. And and I love this last word of that precept, samadhyami. The D in it comes from the word dana, to give. Isn't that interesting? And it's diyami, so it's something I'm giving to myself. This is a gift I give to myself to learn something. So living in this world of celibacy together. Some of you temporarily on this retreat and others, others maybe there's a longer commitment to such an exploration. And it really is, it's, it's a time to commit to celibacy so that there's a chance to create a different relationship to either that, that simple energy to connect with others and also in particular to develop a different relationship to sexual energy. Having a chance to know it is how it comes and goes and getting a sense of how to be with it rather than merely entangled in it. Somebody asked the 16th, uh, 16th Karmapa, you know, why he had chosen a life of celibacy. And the reason why he was asked is that many Tibetan lamas in the Kagyu tradition uh, most commonly will will um, will partner or will marry. And he explained, I am celibate for the same reason that you are not. Isn't it interesting? Or in other words, just as you are not celibate, you know, or that you engage in sex to connect and be intimate with others, I am celibate in order to connect and be intimate with others. This is my way of intimacy. That's your way of intimacy. This is my way of intimacy. It, it gives me a chance to taste a deeper sense of intimacy and to liberate it. Instead of merely following these impulses, it's beginning to notice them. And I think it's great to to slow down just to notice all of these ways that the mind and heart can use to use the language of the poem, fall in love especially those fairy tales the mind can create. Because have you noticed that about the pleasant fantasies about other people? Have you noticed how completely unrealistic they are? (laughs) Have you noticed that? I mean, it's also true about the people that you don't like. (laughs) But here, to notice it around the people that you might feel attracted to. I mean, it's interesting of noticing what's not in those fantasies to notice how unrealistic they are. Like, have you noticed when that appealing fantasy arises in your mind about deeply and intimately connecting with that other person that you don't fantasize about the fight around money? (laughs) Right? That never happens. Or that you never fantasize about the disjointed conversation with that other person that leaves you feeling abandoned and rejected. (laughs) And why doesn't it include the the stupid fight around uh, how to load the dishwasher? But that's often part of relationship, isn't it? (laughs) 
But that's the world of fantasy. We want to leave those parts out. (laughs) And even sexual fantasies, it's, it's the same thing. Does your fantasy, sexual and fantasy, ever include bad breath? Right? Where is that? The bad odor, the farting, that awkward moment afterwards when you're trying to act like it's okay, but actually it totally turns you off. And then the other person gets to feel shame. And then you spend the rest of the night trying to work it out in a conversation. Maybe somebody's had a fantasy like that, but I'm, I would put big money that uh, that hasn't happened. <laughs> the reason why I'm trying to make a light of that is to really point out how you're really not interested in that other person. You're interested in them as a caricature that can carry your projections, right? They're only there to fulfill my own fantasy, my world. That interpreter, I didn't know anything about her. My mind was using her for my fantasy in some way. It had nothing to do with her. And and this is how craving works. It's not about the other person any longer when, when the mind is hooked in this way. But it feels like that. You know what I'm talking about? It feels like that, but it really isn't. The, the Pali word for uh, lust is uh, raga, which literally means to color, like the the act of coloring or dyeing a piece of fabric. So that craving colors my perception of that other person. It colors it with my world. As I said in that last talk, this quote attributed to Anais Nen, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. And, and that's the cool thing about retreat is to begin to notice how the mind is coloring the world, how it's coloring perception. There's just one. There's a whole huge variety. Whatever mind state that's arising, whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, it colors the world that you're walking in. Have you noticed that? This is This is the key insight to have, how the how experience is co-created by the mind. It's being fabricated in part by the mind. And we want to be able to notice this in, in all these different ways, even around these pleasant fantasies. And, and also sometimes what can start to reveal itself are these uh, deeper ways that the mind has been shaped in unskillful ways around these notions of falling in love, around these notions of connecting. And sometimes what's implied in some of these fantasies and how it can feel so real because they can run so deep. And I, I want to give an exa- one example of this to share with you an image. It's an, it's an image that comes from a, a platonic dialogue called the Symposium. In this platonic dialogue, it's, it's set in the midst of a, a group of men getting together to hang out. And they're hanging out to drink together. So the word uh, symposium in Greek literally means to drink together. And they're coming together to share things they might not in other set- settings. And the topic for the evening, this evening when this story comes up, is uh, around love. And they're all going around and sharing their different notions about what love is. It finally comes to uh, Aristophanes, who was a Greek writer who wrote comedies. And it's important to remember, in Greek times at least, 
comedies most often did not give a, a, a kind of a noble portrayal of what it is to be a human being, but often a rather dark description. So the, the, the story that Aristophanes tells is interesting. He says, he gives this kind of mythic story that once upon a time, all of us were these cartwheels. We were intertwined, bounded with another human being. And then we made these cartwheels and we'd move all over the place. And these cartwheels would be like two men together or two women together or a man and a woman. Or if Aristophanes was writing now, I think he'd say there'd this would include trans folks and non-binary folks, you know, genderqueer folks, all these different combinations. And as, as what happens in always these uh, good Greek mythical stories, all these beings, they, um, they angered the gods in some way. And then the god Zeus gets very angry what Zeus does when he gets angry is he likes to punish, but he doesn't like to destroy. He loves the offerings, but wants to punish them. So how he punishes us is that he, he separates all of us from each other. So then we're left wandering around the world looking for our other half to complete us. I find it an incredibly dark view of what relationship is about. And maybe to get a sense of this, have you ever got into a relationship from that impulse? Oh, finally, I found my other half. Finally, I'm going to be complete in some way. That feeling like something's missing and relationship is going to give it to me? Ah, here it is. Have you ever gotten in a relationship like that? <laughs> I mean, I have this disaster. <laughs> this person is going to complete me. <laughs> Ouch, yeah. So for those of you who've been in those relationships, you know where that goes. But it can feel like that. And then again, that human being, I'm not seeing them. They're just a caricature that I'm utilizing to, to try to feel some feeling in me. And even sometimes when our minds know it, there can still be that impulse. And, and I feel like through practicing th- through these desires and cravings and beginning to have a capacity to be with them rather than to be consumed by them, a door opens. It's the door to being able to love when I can step out of that. Not merely falling in love, being able to love. opening the door to liberate intimacy. So so how to navigate these impulses that some of you might be feeling on retreat. It's really all that we've been talking about. It's it's the practice that all of us teachers have been describing in multiple ways. To be present with these arisings, these dynamics. And sometimes, for at least for me, when I really started to deeply explore this territory, an important component was again to repeat self-compassion. And sometimes there's various ways I, I touch into self-compassion. Sometimes I'll use the phrase, oh, no wonder I feel this way. Of course I feel this way. Because what that does is it it softens like, oh, yes, this is going to come up for me, this feeling. Acknowledging this is what comes with 
being a mammal. Right? I'm so deeply designed for connection, being the social creature. Of course this is going to come up. No wonder it is. And then to care about myself in the midst of that, with all the tangles that can happen in my mind. So I'm not fighting it. And then doing what we've been talking about, stepping out of the story and the imagery as best you can to feel into, to feel into that ache or a gnawing feeling or the agitation or the longing, the reaching. A whole range of feeling tones, the sometimes pleasant and quite often a lot of unpleasant. And the flavors of emotion, the loneliness or sadness or excitement or boredom mixed into it. And I don't need to figure out the why. I just need to be present with the whole fabric of it. And it's, I do want to point this out because it's more of a behavioral thing, but especially around when I have strong sexual attraction, I find it so helpful to guard my eyes. And what I mean by that, not to look. It's because it, have you noticed my mind's like, oh, come on, just, just, just a little bit. just. <laughs> It's like a foot or whatever it is, and then the mind's off to the races. (laughs) It's really crazy. You actually don't have to do that to yourself on retreats. It is super helpful. And it is, and I want to be clear, this is tricky to talk about because I'm not here to say that there's something about the sexual impulse, there's something bad about connecting. It's about taking time to get a different view of it and how it can be intertwined with really dynamics of suffering. I remember a a fellow practitioner, a friend of mine, where she had chosen really a a vow of celibacy. It was something that really aligned with her her, um, spiritual path and we were talking about this whole realm and she was sharing with me that she'd had this vow for a few years and it was really opening up these really interesting dimensions, but it had also settled something in her system that was really quite remarkable for her. And I'm not saying this for everybody. And then she w- went to a workshop and she ended up having this huge crush on this person, super intense. And I remember she said, you know, Brian, the thing that was so poignant to me was how miserable I was. Because it it obscured my ability to really connect with this person. And she said, it was the first time like I felt it in its purity in a way. And and I wanted to point this out just to, to... to honor the kind of life that we're doing right now, not that you have to do that after this retreat, of just the power of the celibate life in this way. And I, I, I want to mention it, not to convince you of the, this option, it's, it's not my path, but to bring in a different way of being that, that sometimes we, we don't talk about and to see the value of it, at least for periods of our life. Because you don't, you don't see it being talked about at all. Like, you know, when was the last time you were at a grocery store and you noticed the cover of the magazine say, you know, 10 ways to make your celibate life better? <laughs> and that'd be great. It's not a popular thing. And just to be super honest and clear with you, in this moment on retreat for the next few weeks, you're going to have no satisfaction in terms of that person that you're wanting to be with or to meet. It's, it's not going to happen here, right? You're not going to even be able to speak to them. And they actually don't exist out there anyway, right? It's just your projection. Your mind is fabricating that person. 
So merely being lost in the wanting or the fantasizing, that's what it is. And it's great just to notice that, okay, like, I need to find a different way of navigating this. Right? And sexual energy, you're not getting laid anytime soon, right? <laughs> a few weeks. <laughs> it's an opportunity. And you have two options. And this is what Rebe- Rebecca mentioned, right? To merely suffer through it or to learn how to suffer through it effectively so that it opens up something different. Being able to love rather than merely falling in love. So lastly, what what can come out of this? What's a different description of being able to love, an intimacy that's liberated? comes from Li Po, the, the great, uh, I think, Tang Dynasty Chinese poet. You ask why I make my home in the mountain forest, forests, and I smile and am silent. And even my soul remains quiet. It lives in the other world which no one owns. The peach trees blossom the water flows. Do you hear what this other world is? It's one that no one owns. It's no one's there. And when no one's there, there's that intimacy with the peach trees blossoming and the water flowing. So may our practice here on this retreat lead to the liberation of intimacy. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.